what's up y'all it's zach with living corporate now look what are we doing what are we doing here if you're with somebody who hasn't listened to the podcast before you go ahead and lean over and tell them if you buy yourself in your car at a bus stop uh, on a train on a plane whatever i can tell you myself living corporate seeks to amplify and center underrepresented marginalized under appreciated underestimated voices in the workplace uh, we do that through having authentic available and candid conversations with black and brown thought leaders of all types of varieties um, on this platform right i've talked to y'all some about this before um, i came up i didn't have a lot of family members who could teach me the game and teach me how to navigate these spaces um, and so as i kind of put myself out there and we get dismissed or dissed or um, ignored by people that look like me and people who didn't look like me every now and then there'd be somebody who would kind of whisper some real talk to me the goal of this platform is to democratize uh, wisdom and democratize information and insights that we don't often have out loud we're trying to have all that information available and present here so that's what we're doing we're having real talk in a corporate world and that real talk continues today with our guest dr tammy l hodo dr tammy hodo is the president of all things diverse and it's an educational consulting company working with organizations to optimize employee productivity through recognizing the value of diversity equity and inclusion Dr. Hodo earned her Ph.D. from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in urban studies with a minor in sociology and specializations in race, class, gender and ethnicity. Uh, Dr. Hodo has provided training to local and national organizations under the umbrella of diversity, equity and inclusion. She's written course content on implicit biases and microaggressions for the national educational vendor that's being used at hundreds of colleges and universities. So she's certified. Some of y'all, you know, quietly will kind of question our space and, you know, the authenticity of our space because we don't have these Eurocentric westernized academic accreditations. Uh, so uh, don't hate on us. OK, you know what I'm saying? We out here, you know, she's worked with academia over 10 years in a variety of positions, including faculty and university administrator roles. Her most recent administrative role was the director of diversity and inclusion for a law school where she was responsible for policy development and overall institutional compliance for students, faculty and staff related to discrimination and harassment. Dr. Hodo recently completed a visiting assistant professor of sociology position at the University of North Florida. Now, look, y'all going to ask me again. Why did I take that whole time to read this incredible bio? First of all, because it's fire Two, because she deserves it. Okay. so uh, with that being said, Dr. Hodo, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well, Zach. Thank you so much for that phenomenal introduction. And and like you said, I'm legit. That's right. So, you know, I appreciate that. And you are right. People like to tend to marginalize us or question our, our our credentials well mine are legitimate academic straight public university research grounded so we're good to go so now uh, let's talk a little bit about your academic focuses and how they inform your work so you talk you know you have this phd in urban studies like like this this combination of urban studies with sociology and then specializations in race class gender and ethnicity like how does that inform the work that you do So what I found out early on, and and just full disclosure, let me uh, prefix it with this. So I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm the product of an interracial marriage. So I'm biracial, and my parents married in 62. I'm not that old. But but anyway, um, so we grew up uh, realizing, you know, that race was an issue, but grew up very much cloaked in my mother's white privilege. 
So um, I went into the military, which is where I had my first real experience with institutional as well as interpersonal racism, which drew me to attend a HBCU, uh, which for those who don't know, historical black college university for undergrad, um, because I needed to surround myself with people who look like me in a positive space after what I had just experienced in our U.S. military. Um, and I just continued on my academic journey after that. But I realized quickly as I got my master's at a predominantly white institute, as well as my Ph.D., that there were not a lot of people who looked like me in positions of power, let alone teaching me. You know, when you come from a HBCU, that's what you see, people who look like you, who are teaching you, who are rather hard on you because they know how society is going to treat you. And so they're not, you know, you have to know what you know before they allow you to graduate. So that kind of piqued my interest when I got to the university on my at the doctoral level. And again, I began to see not a lot of people who look like me. Now, I can kind of maneuver between Hispanic and African-American uh, community because sometimes people aren't really sure what I am which works to my advantage. And what I did was I began to look around and again, saw that lack of diversity in faculty. And I decided, you know, I'm really interested in what their experiences are because I always thought you have a PhD, which is the highest academic degree you could possibly obtain. And this was rather naive of me that you've shown basically that, you know, I'm, I'm American, you know, I've bought into the ideal of, of education mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm qualified and I'm here. Um, so at the, you know, at the university I did the study at, there were out of a thousand tenure or tenure track faculty members, there were only 65 that were Hispanic, African, African-American or Caribbean. Wow. So I, I set out to basically interview them about their experiences, you know, and how the climate and culture was at this predominantly white institute. Um, and it was it was rather amazing and disheartening. In many ways, Mm. Um, I had some faculty members. Well, I found out really that representation matters if they were in a department where they were not the sole person of color. They seemed to fare better and they felt a sense of camaraderie. Um, And then in other departments where they were the sole person of color, oftentimes they felt like they were being alienated and isolated and really used more as a token, you know, for when we need to have these conversations about diversity or if there's a racial incident on campus, then all of a sudden you want to speak to me. But other than that, you really don't want to interact with me. It's interesting. And kind of going back to the, the top of what you said, you talked about the fact that you first experienced, um, you know, individual and institutional racism in the military. And it's I, I find that curious because, there are plenty of folks who would say that the military is a a space where I don't want to say colorblind, but they will say that, you know, that actually reinforces uh, meritocracy, that the military is a true meritocracy. So can you talk a little bit more about your experiences in the military and and, and kind of what that meant? Because it, it does seem to fly in the face of a lot of claims when people kind of characterize the military as a race neutral place. Right. So when when so I went in right after high school because I knew I was not prepared for college, like maturity wise, I would have partied right on out. But you have to know yourself. And I did know that about myself. (laughs) Um, And both of my parents had served in the military. And so I went in and again, you know, growing up in a predominantly white space in Milwaukee, which is the third most segregated metropolitan city in America. But we did grow up on the east side of town, the white side of town. 
Um, I was just really surprised at how overt the racism that I did see was. Um, I had I just had never experienced it like that. And they tell you in boot camp, you know, in, in, in the military, well, in the Navy, everyone's blue. Everyone's blue. That's how we see you, because at that time we wore dungarees, which were the bell bottoms. But that wasn't how I was treated. Um, and that's when I realized in America, when you're biracial, you're black. Hmm. They, they, you, they try. I mean, we saw that with Obama. What do they say? We had our first African American president. That's right. But that man is biracial. That's I've right. never met. I've never met a biracial person who identifies one way or the other because that takes away half of who we are. Right. Um, but yeah, so I had some just some experiences in the military that I know had a lot to do with race and sex. You know, it wasn't just even race; it was sex as well. Um, and I was in, you know, during tail hook and this tail hook scandal. And so we saw a lot of issues surrounding sex, but it, it was very racialized and it was not based on meritocracy in my view at all. Um, and so I did my four years and that really drove me to the HBCU because of the experiences that I had. Wow. And, and you know, and you talk about some of the work um, and the conversations that you that you had uh, with folk in academia um, and 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 some of the tokenism there, right? Like you said, like basically folks really don't want to interact with you unless there's something transactional they can get from you from a perspective of one part of your identity. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yes. I ended up marrying a gentleman who I'm still married to. We've been married 23 years. Come on now. But I'm okay. Yeah. So <laughs> black love is real. Yes. And, and we have, and we have a 17 year old son who I worry about constantly, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, but so I ended up getting married to a gentleman who was in ROTC when we were in undergrad. So I followed him around after I graduated, you know, with my bachelor's and he got commissioned and I followed him around for 20 years. And it was just always amazing to me um, to see, you know, everywhere we went upon me receiving my Ph.D., I would teach, you know, whatever the nearest university. So I've taught at the University of Texas, San Antonio. I've taught at Virginia Commonwealth University, you know, some universities in Milwaukee and San Diego and all these other places. And oftentimes I would be the only person of color. And that's fine in one aspect. Um but when I feel like I'm being used as a token, that's when the problem comes in. And in some departments, I felt like I was totally part of the team, you know, because I would end up in the criminal justice or sociology space. And you study inequality and you deal with the variables of race, ethnicity and sex and social economic status. But I've also been in some other departments where, again, I've been the only person and I have totally been made to feel like a token. I've actually had uh, one incident, one one school I was at where I had a colleague who didn't even speak to me. Hmm. And and I was the only person of color in the department. And I find that interesting because I wondered, I always wonder, and I still wonder how that person treats students who look like me. It's concerning. You also talk about in your research and in your your larger profile. I read a very quick bio, but you talk about uh, the role that critical race theory plays in the work that you do. Can we talk a little bit about about that? Sure. So I my dissertation, the paradigm I used was critical race theory, which actually comes out of um, from legal scholars. And what it was, uh, critical race theory recognizes that racism is not gone in America. And it puts race at the, the center of your inquiry for your research. 
So some of the legal scholars that are well known and who have coined the term are Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, Derek Bell wrote a phenomenal book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well that gives all these short stories that are very much based on critical race theory. And then Richard Delgado. And they were instrumental in the development of critical race theory. And like I said, it just recognizes that race is a social construct, but it has real life effects on our life chances in America because it's so ingrained into our institutions and our society as well as our culture. And so then can we talk a little bit about like the role that hierarchy and power plays when it comes to race and um, and matters of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I ask because I feel as if when we have these conversations and we talk about, even when we talk about like the concepts of inclusion and belonging and, and all these different terms, that we, it's almost in those discussions, everybody is flat. Like there's no other dynamics other than identity. But I do believe that there's a variable there that we're not accounting for when we don't talk about power and roles. Right. And and we, we must discuss the power dynamics, right, in America. I think we see a lot of white fragility now because reality is the power dynamics are still very much held in the hands of predominantly straight white males. Um, and But we see the demographics of America are changing. You know, so just just my point is like diversity is having a diverse group of employees. Right. So at the universities that I've taught at, I'll see diversity in the workforce and I'll see people who look like me, but they tend to be the secretaries, the janitorial crews uh, the food service workers and the landscapers. Right. Yes. And then it, it, and I mean, and that's the reality that I see. Um, inclusion is not only about being in the organization, but you actually have to have a seat at the table of leadership where you're providing your input and your voice is being heard and your ideals and concerns are actually considered as they write policy or they make decisions about hiring. Because oftentimes I see diversity, but I don't see inclusivity. Like the example I gave um, at the one university where I had the colleague who didn't speak to me. Well, they could say they had you know, diversity, even though I was the only person of color, but they did have white women, which are considered diverse as well. And the person who was the one who was not speaking to me was actually a white woman, you know, right. um, and, and that's problematic in itself. And we've seen that in the women's movements, you know, how people of color have been kind of an afterthought. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's an issue. But then equity, you know, equality, people talk about equality. And that's just that everyone, the ideal that everyone's given the same thing. But equity recognizes that some people have less privilege than others. And therefore, they need a bit more help to reach the same place. Right. So we know systemically that racism has been ingrained in American society. I mean, reality is, yes, slavery was real. You know, and and that's who helped build our nation. And when we look at the hierarchy and the people in positions of power, they continuously do not look like the vast majority of the population. And, And that's something that has to be addressed. And we have to create spaces in workplaces where we have the courageous conversations. Um, again, like I said, white fragility is real, which I kind of struggle with because if you tell me society's based on meritocracy and everybody can be successful if they pull themselves up by their bootstraps, I struggle to understand why people are so concerned about the demographics changing. 
That doesn't make you, you get what I'm saying. That right, doesn't right, make any sense. Because if we if we shuffle the pieces around the board, if all things are equal, they're all going to rise to the top anyway, right? Correct. Right. Correct. <laughs> and, and that's and I hear that a lot, right? I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves is when I hear people say, "Well, people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps." But then let's talk about the institutional racism, like housing covenants and redlining and all these other things that were put into place to ensure that a certain group was able to rise to the top. You know, you talk, you talk just now about courageous conversations. And so that's, and we love, you know, we love alliteration in all, you know, corporatized, either formally corporate or corporate like environments. So I think that includes academia as well um, as things become just more corporate in their, um, in the administrative uh, functions. But um, I think my challenge when it comes to courageous conversations is like, how courageous are black and brown people really allowed to be? If I'm not in a position to really change company policy or uh, standard operating procedures, then what incentive do I have as like a non-executive or non-leader even? If I'm like, let's just say I'm, I'm not even a manager, like I'm just like a, you know, an individual contributor. What is my incentive to raise my voice and share my concerns about how I'm being mistreated? Right. And, you know, my question is, what does it look like for organizations and leaders to understand that dynamic in that even if you're talking to someone who's black and brown, like and they're giving you feedback that they're only typically going to go so far? Yeah. And and that's problematic in itself. Um, I mean, and, and you're right, though, if, if I'm just, a, you know, say a, a not even a line supervisor, I'm an employee and I'm working and I'm having issues maybe with another employee and it's surrounding issues of race or my sexuality or my religion or things like that. How far up can I go and will my voice be heard? And that really depends on the organization and their, you know, are they actually, what I often see is a lot of organizations have a lot of good talk, but they're not actually walking the walk. It's not very transparent. Right. And people are fearful to give feedback because I can't afford to lose my job, you know, but I'm treating being treated as less than by a colleague or maybe my first level supervisor. So what do I do? You know, and that that part is very hard to navigate, but it depends on the organization. Now, I will say when I was a diversity officer at the law school, I had a phenomenal dean and I had direct access to him. And when I wanted to have these courageous conversations, it was a non-issue. Hmm. So I taught them about microaggressions. I actually had a student um, during Black History Month, of course, one of my African-American students wore a shirt about black history. And I had a Caucasian student say, well, how would you feel if I wore a shirt and, and said that we should have White History Month? And, and And not even, and I mean, he really, I was like, wow, he just really couldn't even process that we have that 365, wow. well, this year, 366 days right. of, of the year, right? And, We're and in leap year. Here's the, 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 the thing that folks don't really want to, you know, everybody, I want everybody to stop. So if you're driving your car, pause. You know, White History Month is every month, even, and I know this is going to blow y'all's mind, even during Black History Month. <laughs> like, it's every <laughs> month. <laughs> It's every single month. And I, and I hear you. I want to I want to double click on my question, though, because I think what I'm getting at is what does it look like to help leaders create safer spaces? Because I think we can look at like the history of America 
I look at my own personal history that any time um, a black or brown person seeks to advocate for themselves or speak up for the humanity or dignity of other black and brown people, um, they're met with some type of backlash or retribution. And so what does it look like in your experience to teach or coach leaders to not harbor frustrations or let that fragility impact that person to where they don't feel unsafe at work? Well, the leaders have to have the appropriate training. Mm. Um, Emotional intelligence is one thing I like, and and it's like that vulnerability-based trust. And they actually, the leaders, I mean, reality is the leaders set the tone for the whole organization. And if they're not culturally competent and they're not transparent and they're not actually walking the walk that they're talking, the employees know. And they're going to be afraid to say anything. And they're going to be afraid of retribution or retaliation. And that's problematic, you know, that you have to get it where it rises to the level of like a Title VII complaint, right, which is based on race, ethnicity and and things of that nature. So if a leader wants to be successful, they have to be culturally competent and they have to have systems, a process in play where employees, I mean, even if it's anonymous, where they can report incidents, you know, that have been taking place within the workplace with other employees or maybe their manager. What happens if your manager says something that is really inappropriate? And, you know, um, who are you supposed to go to? You know, they need to know how the hierarchy works. And I do like an anonymous type system because people are more prone to share their reality if they know that there's not going to be any retaliatory behavior. Um, You know, it's 2020 and we're seeing and we'll continue to see an influx of um, Gen Z workers enter the workplace. Um, In what ways do you anticipate organizations will need to continue to create equitable and inclusive workplaces for this new generation of folks coming in? Well, I tell you what, Gen Z gives me a lot of hope because like when I think about sexuality, they recognize the fluidity of it. They're not as concerned with the labels, you know, as past generations have been. But I think that um, corporations are going to have to right now we have up to five generations in the workplace. So they're going to have to learn how to create inclusive work environments where everyone feels like their voice is being heard. So some of the recommendations would be maybe a two-way mentoring program, you know, um, multi-generational project teams, um, you know, uh, opportunities to shadow some of the older employees and learn how they've done things. But you have to have people with open minds because the Gen Zs are going to say, well, the way I would do it is this way. You know, and that, that that may be a better way. You know, it, it may be an opportunity to change some processes and allow those who are older to learn from Generation Z. I, I'm really excited about them, though, because I think that they, you know, want to kind of be left alone. They want to be able to be um, creative in what they do, and they don't necessarily want all those labels that are attached to, to certain bodies that we've seen in the past. So I, I'm pretty excited about that. But again, they're going to have to create a space where Gen Z's feel like their voices are being heard because I, I think they have no issue with moving around. No, I think that's true. And I think because because <laughs> I think like there's a the, the idea that folks are just going to kind of stay and put up with abuse 
or mm-hmm. even, you know minor major or minor and who am i to say what abuse is major or minor because that's uh, relative to your own perspective and experience but i know for a fact that gen z out of everybody else they quick to be like hold on a minute that player hold on a minute that player you ain't gonna just <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't gonna just they'll leave they'll leave if you don't let them work from home so they'll definitely leave if they feeling like you know they're not being treated equitably and then on top of that they'll get on their uh on that social media and I think that people are still still now feeling and they know because we see Bloomberg buying up all these uh, meme accounts and stuff. But so we we're we're just now I think we're really getting to understand the impact of negative organic press via uh, these social channels. And so I'm really curious. I, I, they give me a lot of hope, too. They give me hope in that I think gen, this next generation will uh, communally hold massive institutions accountable in ways that millennials do not and that certainly uh, older generations have not because they haven't had the uh, exposure or experience to do so so look this has been a really cool conversation dr hodo like i really want to give you space though to talk about all things diverse and you know the, the story behind the the firm that you started the work that you're doing what you're excited about and where people can learn more about it so I'm really excited. So I really recently started my business about 15 months ago, but I had always done, even when I was in academia, kind of sole proprietary stuff surrounding diversity. I figure who, who better to teach you than that a biracial person from Wisconsin, right? Because right. I, I've seen I've seen too many African-Americans when they do go and try to teach, you know, we have certain label, labels. Well, she's the angry black woman or right. you know, all these derogatory... Yeah, they're emotional. So when I begin to teach and do training, one of the first things I put out there is my history, because then it's just kind of like, so now that we can not attach that label to me, um, let's go ahead and go in the process of actually learning, you know, about diversity. So my site is allthingsdiverse.com. And I actually did a TED talk about the social implications of race. Um, and I did that in Jacksonville. So you can find that on my website as well as if you just type in the social implications of race. Um, but my services that I offer, I do uh, consulting where I um, work with individual uh, companies to help them address any issues of inclusivity. I do assessments. So I really like to do climate surveys because that gives me an idea of where there's a deficit, where there is some deficiency within the organizations. And I do that anonymously when I do the assessments, because again, that way the employees are honest, you know, and using those, uh, that assessment, then I'm able to provide that company with the training that they need, you know, whether it be about uh, understanding the preferred pronouns, you know, the correct language in the LGBTQI community, um, you know, whether it's racial, ethnic, or xenophobic issues, homophobic, Islamophobic, And then we also offer um, speaking engagements. So I offer a lot of services and I just want people to be culturally competent, you know, because I've lived in Europe. It was so refreshing. We lived in Europe almost six years and it was amazing over there. I was just American, you know, and and, and to be a person of color and just be that. And right. And not not have to deal with like the intersectionality. So over here, I'm a woman and I'm of color. So I, I you know, I already have like two things that 
typically don't work in my favor right. unless they want a token, you know, mm. so just kind of, <laughs> kind of exposing people to that. But I will share that um, one of the reasons I started this consulting company was, first of all, I see that there's a need. Um, second of all, is that in academia, some of the experiences I had has shown me that education doesn't mean necessarily enlightenment regarding cultural competencies. Um, I don't know if you recall, I'm sure you do remember uh, Barbecue Becky? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, she has a PhD from Stanford. So, that, oh, I mean, oh, oh, oh. yes. So hold on, just for context for our listeners. <laughs> The white lady that called the police on those black people for having a barbecue in the middle of a sunny day has a Ph.D. from Stanford. Yes, she does. And so that that's kind of my point, too. And and the lady I explained to you who didn't even speak to me at my job, who is also a Ph.D., right? So that that showed me. And I mean, and through my dissertation, working with the other faculty and interviewing them about their experiences, that education doesn't necessarily mean culturally competent, you know, and, and I've seen that, you know, and, and it, it's like so that's one of the reasons I started this company, too, is because it, education may mean enlightenment, but it depends on what topics. You're absolutely right. Now, I, I think I think it's just intellectually dishonest or maybe it's lazy or maybe it's both to presume that, like, just because someone has a high degree from a white institution that then makes them fluent in the matters of historically marginalized people. Right. Right. So, like. Slaves, <laughs> slave labor was used in building a lot of those colleges. A lot of those colleges still pay homage to um, and honor and have buildings and statues, and they're being taken down slowly, but to uh, white supremacists and white nationalists and Civil War veterans. So I think it's a it's a weird, it's a gap and it's a leap in logic or just it's illogical, really, to say, well, oh, this person has a degree from Harvard or this person has a degree from X, Y, and Z. So they, how could they be racist? And I think right. it also I think it also like it's also a drive to kind of absolve or distance white folks from the reality that racism is it crosses a bunch of different sub demographics. Um, it's not just something that like is uh, some type of pandemic in the south in like some country town in Arkansas. Like it's it's far reaching. Right. Like You can be anybody. You can be anti-black and have any type of background or education. You can. And I mean, you could be married to an African-American and be Caucasian and okay. still have racist oh, tendencies. OK, so don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> but I mean, but that's just like those. So the the um, we came we moved to the location we're at now from Richmond, Virginia. So I'm driving to Virginia Commonwealth University, which I enjoyed working there. But I'm driving down Jefferson Davis Parkway going to teach about the social context of African-American families in urban sociology, where we deal with the variables of race, class, gender, and ethnicity. It's symbolic terrorism, right? Hmm. Because I'm driving by all these monuments, which I knew were not erected until after slavery and the failure of reconstruction. So what were they put up for? It's symbolic terrorism. The city I live in now, we have a Robert E. Lee High School, 99% black. I lived in Europe for six years. Guess what? In Germany, there is no Adolf Hitler or Third Reich monument, I, I, right. let alone schools. Right. You're not so, gonna, right. You're not going to have no Third Reich Academy. Right. Uh, right. In, in, in Germany. And I think and I think that's that is like the biggest. And like, you know, we talk about it from time to time, but even like. But like Baldwin and other folks talked about it too. Like America is so, it's just so curious and just so insidious in how 
deep down, we don't believe we were wrong. Right now, mm-hmm. we're seeing a new phenomena and uh, we're seeing an, an ever growing phenomena rather uh, in Germany. There, there, there seems to be a there is not seems to be there is a, a increase in um, mm-hmm. white nationalist uh, Nazism or neo-Nazi behavior. Um, and so that's something that is, I think, is starting to be reported on more, but still underreported. But the reality is um, they don't center their identity or have some, you know, there's not a formal or like recognition or, or idea that, you know, these ideas were just different. They know they were they, they classify them and have uh, called them deplorable because that's what they are. But I don't know. I, I'm curious as to when or if that will ever happen on a formal federal scale. Um, in America. I I don't know that it will ever happen. I'm always amazed though how when we talk about reparations, how everyone else who has been marginalized in America got something. Now not to say they got good stuff, right? right, right, right. Because we, we know the natives, all the land was taken from them, put them on reservations that like you can't even grow anything on. Correct. So, you know, and but you know, they got something. Not to say it was grand. Right. Um, the Japanese who were in internment camps, each family got ten thousand dollars. You know, we've seen others get some type of reparations. But when it comes to African-Americans, anytime you bring that up, it, it's problematic for a lot of people. You know, but I'm thinking, gosh, who do you think built this nation? You know, I mean, how, how much, you know, or it, it, that's just like the conversation of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or, you know, when we talk about affirmative action, statistically, white women have been the primary benefactors, number one. Um, number two, when we look at the universities, we don't talk about legacies when we talk about affirmative action. We don't. But those are the and, biggest recipients. Exactly. And and guess what? Most of our, our ancestors couldn't even go to those schools until the 60s. Right. When we talk about creating generational wealth, we don't talk about the Federal Housing Administration implementing housing covenants and redlining. So you had these veterans come back from World War Two and the Korean War who could not utilize their benefit to use their VA home loan because they were locked into low-income black areas, even though they had served right beside their white peers who were able now, with the help of urban renewal grants, you know, to go out into the suburb in this utopia of shopping centers and, you know, A1 schools, but their their peers who had also served with them could not do the same. I mean, so we're not even starting out on the same footage, you know, and that's the reality that I think a lot of people fail to understand. They say, well, slavery ended you know, at this time, well, yeah, Jim Crow didn't end, you know, until the civil rights movement. And all that's happened is now we have James Crow and he's in a suit and a tie. And he's and he's still writing these policies that, that are very, you know, um, impactful negatively to our community. I mean, you look at the criminal justice system and the rate of mass incarceration and the disparity between crack and cocaine. In the sentencing, right? You look at now we have all these uh, medicinal and recreational marijuana facilities. What about all the people who are locked up for that? To this day, I think I agree. I think I think the challenge that we still have, though, is so we're just now and we're seeing it like in in the presidential campaign as we like look at the the Democratic nominee and and we have folks who are being held account to their own behaviors, but we're now just getting to the point where we can acknowledge systemic racism but i still think there's a huge disconnect between 
folks in power saying we have systemic problems and those very folks not being able to acknowledge their current role today in like perpetuating those same systems. Right. So like Mm -hmm. and so like when we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, and we really want to talk about, I mean, equity, it's like you saying, hey, we have more work to do or getting up on stage where a bunch of people can see you and like. Because a lot of these companies, right, like they'll get up on these stages and these platforms and talk about all these things that need to change. But like rarely ever do if if ever have I seen someone in a, an executive position of authority in a major company say, hey, this is what I did wrong. Or these are policies and processes that we need to change. And this was the impact because I did not do those things. Right. So it's like they want to be absolved. They want to acknowledge, but also be absolved at the same time. And I think. The reality is accountability has to come with some of these conversations. If we're we we continue to talk around them or talk about these things, even historically, without also talking about the practical implications of how they're maintained and they still thrive today under the very nose or by the very hands of the people who are just now acknowledging them. I think that's the for me, when I think about this work, I anticipate there being like a bit of a split eventually between like who's real and who isn't because I don't see this next generation of workers being able to put up with or just tolerating the cognitive dissonance of that. You know what I mean? I I totally agree with you. Gen, Gen Z is not going to put up with that and cognitive dissonance is alive and well in America. I mean, I don't I don't understand how people don't see it, but I, I will have people say, well, racism isn't that that's not an issue. You know, it's all based on meritocracy. But didn't we just see like this big college scandal with Hollywood stars we and did. how they were right? <laughs> so tell me again about meritocracy because if I had that money, I would and my child needed tutoring or whatever, then that's what I would pay for my child to get instead of paying someone else to take the test or change the test for them. So, again, tell me about meritocracy. Right. I mean, but I think the whole, you know, part of it is guilt and and the idea like I've had students or people say to me, well, I don't believe in white privilege. And I tell them that's funny because I do. I grew up cloaked in it. And as soon as I left my parents' household, I, I, I learned really quick that my mother's white privilege, that didn't transfer to me. Um, and so, you know, they say, well, how, how can white people be poor if there's white privilege? Anybody can be poor. That has nothing to do with white privilege. But the negative connotations that are associated with black and brown bodies, as soon as we walk into the room, white people don't have to address that. That's part of white privilege. Hmm. You know, I, regardless, um, I think you may recall a couple years ago, I think Oprah was somewhere overseas. It may have been Switzerland and she That's wanted right. to look want at, get in that, in that store. Right. And, and wanted to look at the handbag. And the woman told her because she did not know who she was, that she wouldn't take the bag down because she knew that she really could not afford it. See, those are the connotations. That's what's attached to our bodies. And that's problematic in itself. You know, and but even though if you're a low income white person, that assumption is not made when they see them, you know, and that's part of white privilege, you know, and and that's what I try to get when I teach to get my students to understand because they'll say, well, no, I was poor or I didn't. It's still like, yeah, but you still had privilege and you still do have privilege. And how about you use that privilege to be an ally? Why don't you, when you see something, why don't you pull that person aside who's done something wrong to someone in a marginalized community and have a conversation with them? Ask them how do they think they would feel if that had happened to them? 
explain to them what microaggressions are, explain to them, you know, what you observed and how it would make you feel. And, and that's what we need. We actually need allies. You know, and I think we, we got to have you back on to talk about um, to talk about the role of allies. And, and, and that conversation happens a lot in these circles. But I think that we don't do the conversation justice when we don't talk about the role that power plays in like in practical ways. Right. And I'd love to have you back on to talk about like real allyship, advocacy um, and, and just kind of the tenets of being an effective ally. Like I said, we've talked about it before on the platform, but we need to talk about it more, especially as we come up on November um, and a lot of the feelings of isolation and exclusion that were heightened and peaked in 2016, um, they're going to happen again in 2020. Yes. Um, and yes, so, they are. And so it's going to be important for folks who, who claim to care, who have the courage to extend their their social capital, um, their financial capital, their political capital, their capital, um, that they're that they are in a position they are educated on how to do so. So um, before we let you go. Um, and we definitely uh, appreciate you being here. We can say you're a friend of the show. Any parting words? Well, I just want to leave with just one of my favorite quotes by James Baldwin. That is not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. In America, we really need to have a conversation about the continued marginalizations of certain groups. Thank you so much, Dr. Hodo. Thank you so much for being on the platform. Really enjoyed this. Uh, Y'all, this has been Zach. You've been listening to Living Corporate. Now, look, you check us out everywhere. We are all over Al Gore's Internet. You know, you just type in Living Corporate. We're going to pop up. But if you're a, a, you know, a a URL type person, it's livingcorporate.co.us.org.net.web.shoot. All the dots, except for livingcorporate.com. Dr. Hodo, Australia owns livingcorporate.com for some reason. But the rest of them, I know, it's crazy. But then we also have living-corporate. Please say the dash.com. Make sure you check us out on Instagram at livingcorporate. Make sure you check us out on uh, Twitter at livingcorporate underscore pod. And shoot, until next time, this has been Zach. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Hodo, uh, professor, educator, speaker, uh, entrepreneur, CEO, mover and shaker, you know. Snatcher of edges, mine and yours. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Catch y'all next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.